so much, uh, Mark. We're gonna like really jump right in just because sure. this is such an important topic. Um, welcome to Real Talk with Bella. We are uh, here uh, with author and speaker, Mark Hennick, uh, who is going to talk to us a little bit. I mean, before I jump into what you're gonna talk about, cause I am extremely passionate. Like I'm actually um, excited to talk to you about this topic specifically because just like, um, you know, when we learned about you, uh, the importance about talking about suicide. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, why you decided to uh, talk about uh, this very important topic and your book? Sure. So I'm a mental health advocate and strategist. I've been doing media consulting, writing, uh, television, all around mental health related uh, topics for virtually all of my professional career so far. Uh, and that really started, uh, I can trace it back to my earliest personal experiences with mental illness, uh, with depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts as a teenager. Um, I now know through the course of writing my book, which will be out in January, uh, that I had started to experience symptoms, uh, again, which I now would call uh, depression, as young as about 10 years old, and I first became suicidal uh, as young as about 12 years old. So, you know, this has been uh, a lifelong uh, initial struggle for me, uh, but really in, in more recent years, a, a lifelong passion of mine that uh, to raise awareness of mental health and mental illness and hopefully to defeat the stigma so that way people can reach out for help. So you said something very, uh, that sticks out to me. I am a mother of a 12 year old and a nine year old boy. And uh, my oldest son has had some uh, challenges very early on, I noticed, cause I'm a different, I am a depressor. I, I, I like to refer to myself as a depression manager just because mm -hmm. I have been dealing with it since I was 13 years old. I could remember where there were days where I just didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to, uh, and there was not like a name to call this feeling. I just felt sad, right? And as I got older, I understood that, okay, there's something here. And I actually became an educator. That was my first career. And in the process of studying psychology, I kind of learned to like place names to feelings and understand how the mind worked and why I was feeling the way that I was feeling. Um, and a lot of it had to do with past trauma that I had endured in my life. I'm a sexual assault survivor. So there's a lot there. As a mother, um, I began to pick up on signs uh, with my son. Okay, I said, these patterns look very familiar. This looks very similar. Uh, we need to intervene now. You know, my husband was a little resistant in the beginning because he's a guy uh, and a man's man, uh, which is, you know, like we don't go to therapy and don't that's just something that we don't talk about and feelings and this. Um, but he also has, you know, with time, I guess being married to me, he had no choice but to talk about stuff, right? Because that's just uh, very quickly what I learned made me feel better, helped me manage, um, you know, feeling situations, whatever, was to talk about these things. Um, as a, you know, you uh, said it was a struggle and now it's become a passion. Uh, but again, you touched on stigma, struggle. We are still dealing with a lot of those same um, issues regarding any type of mental health um, condition, right? Because I, I don't know what it is about just the conversation around mental health that immediately makes people super uncomfortable. They retract mm -hmm. um, because again, is it a, oh, not, not me or not my child or not anyone I know. So it's like an other, it begins to like set you apart from someone else who may be going through those issues. What do yeah. what what would you say um, attributes to that? 
Well, you know, I think that uh, we all want to fit in, of course. We all want to be part of uh, something bigger than ourselves. Uh, and I think that's all the more acute when you're experiencing the loneliness and the isolation that is characteristic of depression. I mean, that's what depression does is make you feel lonely and isolated. So why then would you open up about it at the risk of further isolating yourself, of further ostracizing yourself from, from peers? I experienced this. I actually, I wrote a bit about it in the book as well. Uh, this idea that uh, it would be worse uh, for me to open up and have people think I was weird and crazy and, uh, you know, a, a social outcast, that would be worse for me uh, than just being quiet and, and trying to suck it up or, you know, be a man, as my stepfather would always say, even when I was a little boy. Um, so, you know, I, I think I, it wasn't a conscious decision for me by any means, um, but it was, it was clear that the consequence of opening up uh, was worse because of the stigma than the consequence of just trying to, to quote unquote, get over it. Um, and I think that we are still doing that actually for people uh, every day, uh, often through our implicit stigma where somebody will try to open up to us, for example, and we just don't have time for them. Or uh, we tell them that they're attention seeking, uh, that they're just doing it to, to, um, uh, to get attention. When really, I think that people are connect connection seeking and often we're so desperate for that connection that we'll go to great lengths to get it because we feel so lonely and isolated. That's really um, when you when you obviously frame it that way, and when you you know, I think we can all agree that we've been in scenarios where you know you have like, oh, probably I should have just listened a little bit more, <laughs> or wow, that person may have just been trying to tell me something, and I just like brush them off. Um, and I know it's it's happened to me. One of the things that I, as an adult, I'm 42 years old still, you know, when someone cries in front of me, I, because I'm a crier and, um, you know, I, for whatever reason, understood at some point that crying was a sign of weakness. And, and I remember that trying to make it in the industry that I'm in is like, you, you know, we, you don't cry when you cry, uh, you know, people lose respect for you and, and Crying is a real, uh, it's, it's, it's a reaction to real emotions. And I think that that's what we just need to get comfortable, right? In the discomfort of being uncomfortable because it is, it's, it's like crappy to feel. And I don't know if you're okay with me cursing because I curse a lot on this podcast, <laughs> just so you know. What, was that a curse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, just respect, respectfully asking the mental health advocate if there's you know anything tied into the cursing there. Um, no, because for me, cursing is a release, right? Like I, sure. uh, and I've learned to to its crutch, and but it's a release at the same time of emotions. But I've also learned to not keep things bottled up. And I have been pegged as obnoxious, rude, because I may say something to someone in the moment when I feel it, when I'm genuinely just trying to express myself. And it's like, dude, um, this is X, Y, Z. I won't put up with this nonsense or whatever, um, you know, or just setting boundaries. And I think that I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm getting to is that communication, right? Has a lot to do uh, with the reactions and whatnot. But for people who may be struggling with um, mental health issues, that communication barrier is even greater, right? Uh, because we're already dealing with, because you know, it's the, the internal shit show that's already going on within ourselves and let it to open ourselves up to someone else to see, let them see into that. Um, and see us as flawed, right? Because I think that's our biggest fear is that we are seen as flawed individuals and vulnerability is a very 
real thing and it's a difficult thing for people to embrace, but I'm all for it. <laughs> well, I, I think it, I think it um, makes us feel like we're out of control and there's nothing worse, especially for type A uh, people who, who need to be in control of everything to feel like they aren't. So when we cry, you know, we, we can't control what we look like. We can't control that everybody sees that we actually are a human being. So we try to stuff that all down inside. And, you know, I now realize, and I don't think I actually figured it out until going through the process of writing the book. Uh, but for me, when I became suicidal and I was in and out of hospital more than half a dozen times, it was 100% about control or at least 90% about control. I felt like I had no control over my life, that everybody else was telling me what to do and how to do it. And uh, my future was predetermined because I had a mental illness. And you know, according to TV and newspapers, that meant I was going to be an axe murderer or something, you know, a, a completely inaccurate portrayal of people with mental illnesses, but that's something that I believed. So I, I think that for me, and for many suicidal people, I learned when I later became a clinician and started working with more people like me, uh, was that when people are suicidal, it's not because they want to die necessarily, uh, just for the sake of dying, it's because they don't want to live the way that they're currently living. And we're not doing a good enough job as a society of telling people and teaching people, giving them the tools that they don't have to live that way, that there are other ways to live. It's only when I found that out that I that my really that my life really uh, became so much more beautiful than it was in that dark place. And that was going to be where I was going to lead the conversation next, because you have a, a very powerful TED talk um, that talks specifically about the importance of speaking about suicide. Um, and, you know, obviously, as a parent, I hear those words, and I cringe, and I, uh, you know, immediately want to like vomit, because the thought of uh, one of my children um, going through those, and I'm saying this, having had those same feelings, when I was younger, when I was going through what I was going through. Um, and just as you said, um, you, you commit suicide, or people who, you know, is because the current situation is so unbearable. So it's easy it, in our head, it's easier for us to take ourselves out of it because we don't want to keep hurting the people around us. We don't want to keep, you know, either making the same mistakes or being the disappointment. And why is it so important to, um, to talk about this and to continue mm -hmm. to stigmatize what, because these are just very real raw emotions that we all feel. Some of just, some of us are just better at handling it than others or at verbalizing it than others. Why is it so important well, that we have conversations? You know, I, I think that there's a few things here. It's not even, I think the, the part that it's easier uh, to escape is a, is a very small piece of it. It's actually that, uh, and I, this has turned out to be one of the concepts in the TED talk that I wasn't expecting to really people to catch on to, but they did. It's this idea that you collapse so completely in your mind. I refer to it as this perceptual collapse that you actually can't see any other options. And it, it, it uh, doesn't matter if there are other options, it doesn't matter point that you need to die uh, in order to relieve yourself of this pain. Uh, so I think the reason why we need to raise awareness of suicide, to raise awareness of uh, recovery in particular, you know, not a lot of people realize that recovery isn't just possible from even severe mental illnesses. It's actually expected and likely when people get the help they need. We, yeah. we've had, we have decades of research on really effective uh, treatments that's, if people can get connected with it. It's like people do get better and people can get better. 
with the right. And more people, yeah. more people get better than don't. I mean, yeah. it's an absolute uh, tragedy and scandal that we're losing more than 40,000 Americans every year, more than 800,000 Americans every year to suicide. That's more than murder and war combined, but you never really hear about it. Uh, and I'm of the surprisingly controversial uh, position that 100% of suicides are preventable if we can actually get to people early enough to prevent all the things that we know contribute to suicide. That sense of hopelessness and helplessness, the isolation, uh, the trying to navigate a healthcare system that is you know, confusing for the people who work in it, let alone uh, people who are trying to access it. So if we can actually get people the help that they need, I think we can go a long way in preventing suicide. And that starts with raising awareness. When people are more aware, when, they, when we reduce stigma, they're more likely to reach out for help. They're more likely to survive. And therefore, ideally, I think, become part of the, the system in a more constructive way. They can become the leaders in the system. That's how I end the TED Talk, that uh, people who have been suicidal, who have experience, lived experience with a mental illness, we need them to stay because we need them to reform the system. They can use their experience. They can turn their, their struggle into their strength. And we need more people telling them that. I think it's, yeah, I agree. I, I watched your TED Talk and I thought it was amazing. And I think it's just becoming more comfortable with the topic. Obviously, like everyone has mentioned, there's this stigma around mental health where you know you're you feel as though if you're going to talk about it people will think there's something wrong with you or that it's bad it has a negative connotation um and i have a girlfriend actually who i'm going to butcher exactly how she put it but she she wrote this piece um, about mental health and struggling with depression and she said you know we're so uncomfortable talking about it but you wouldn't judge someone who told you that they had diabetes yeah. right because yeah. it's a, right. a imbalance so okay you take a medication you get better but for some reason when you talk about mental health people automatically look at you like, oh my God, there's yeah, something wrong. Like you're broken and yeah. that's it, get away. Right. You mentioned something really important uh, before that I want to touch on um, before we get into your book, because I think it's going to be so helpful for so many people. Um, you talked about a broken healthcare system. And I think that it is so incredibly important to reform, re restructure, find a way to give access to people to, to um, you know, mental health care providers, because I know for when I was looking for, some, for someone for my son, I had to jump and listen, and I have great health care, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it was the jumping through hoops because of his age, because of this, because of that. So many challenges to actually find him, someone who would see him. Mm -hmm. um, and I would find people, but then my insurance company wouldn't take it. Yeah or, oh, I don't see children, or X, Y, Z. It was so difficult and that by the fourth phone call, had it not been me advocating for my son, I can't imagine had it been my son advocating for himself because by the probably by the second phone call, the third wouldn't have been made and would have given up on the process of trying to get the help that they needed. What, what do we do? Like, what can be done? Because my thing is like, how do we get to the source? You know, I'm sure that has to do with laws and, and I don't want to get into the shit show that is our <laughs> laws, uh, especially with regards to healthcare, but something has to shift because I, I too believe that I think nine, nine out of the 10 crimes that are being committed or um, issues that are happening socially are people that could have been 
um, treated for a mental health um, issue that it, it just be and it had not has not happened because they haven't had access to it. So how do we like start there? Well, if you, you know, can, I think if you can give me the magic potion, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I I think you're right in, in terms of the um, the treatment attempts or the attempts to reach out. I experienced this too, and and eventually I just became known within the healthcare system in my little small hometown as a what's called a frequent flyer. Uh, somebody who the more help they need, the less help they get, uh, yeah. because every time you try to access help, it's either the not not the right kind of help or it's not. Um, all-encompassing enough, you know, we, we have this idea that somebody with a mental illness, their brain is just broken, so therefore right. the extension of that is that it's their problem. Well, no, yeah. actually, we need to get away from asking what's wrong with people and ask instead what happened to those people, because I think our lived experience, our, our social, the social determinants of health are just as important as what's happening in that individual person's brain, uh, and I found time and time again that I would go into hospital I'd get on a cocktail of medications. I'd be okay for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, but then going back into the exact same traumatic uh, abusive environment that sent me there in the first place. Nothing yeah. changes if nothing changes. Uh, right. So it's not a surprise. And we see this happening all the time where the healthcare system is so fragmented that you'll go in uh, and you'll have many attempts, for example, to, to find a therapist or to find a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you try a few medications. Uh, but the, the research in the mental health care system, the way that it's deployed anyway, is such that we actually don't know what works and what doesn't. It's a trial and error process. You're throwing darts at the dartboard half the time. And it's not uncommon at all. I found this out through hosting my podcast uh, for people to try a dozen different uh, routes before they eventually find the one that works. That's no way to have a, a healthcare system. You wouldn't do that with other kinds of illnesses. So we shouldn't expect people with mental illnesses to try to endure that much trial and error either. Um, I think that there is... For like and to do it on their own is the is to do the, it on their own and yeah. they're already they're already struggling and vulnerable so they Correct. probably have a lower threshold uh, to keep trying anyway so this is why we need to move more toward personalized medicine where uh, you have one point of contact within the system you don't have to keep repeating your story over and over you know sexual assault survivors know how how awful that is too uh, where yeah. you're just t telling the same trauma over and over until eventually it just kind of blunts itself inside you. But that's no way to treat it. That's no way to help you. Um, yeah. So we need to move more toward a way where we're identifying early on what people need, what their risk factors are, what their protective factors are, uh, and try to reduce the number of uh, treatments that we do by making it more exact. That's, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but But the thing is, it's like, it sounds so doable right but still we all we see all these flaws and it's such it's so, such a challenge and it's so frustrating because i've had conversations with just friends that have been trying to you know advocate for their own children or for themselves and it's like you wouldn't believe how difficult it was and and what we've and i mean what i do now obviously i'm sure many of us is we just go by referral like who have you used right. let me see um if that will work for me and 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 sometimes it's not that you know who you're seeing probably won't work for me and because we know each other it'll probably be a conflict of interest so like there's all these little factors that um go into just getting the proper health care uh and especially mental health care and it's so important that we continue to advocate not just for our children and ourselves but for each other you know i've become well, kind of i'm sorry i, go I ahead. think here i think here too this speaks to the need that if we're in if 
we're into the point where we're trying to navigate a broken system for services. That yes. tells me that we're already actually a little bit late, that we could be doing more way further upstream. You know, one of the things I'm most passionate about is teaching young kids and their parents simple uh, emotional skills, like how to name and label their emotions. You know, yeah. little kids are born, anybody who's ever seen a toddler knows how loudly they feel things. They're born <laughs> with feelings, with emotions. My nine-year-old still feels them very loudly. <laughs> Yes. And they do. And, and it comes back again in adolescence. Yeah. Like they, they are born with completely raw, unbridled feelings, but they're yeah. not born with the words for those feelings. Correct. If you don't know what to call something, how are you supposed to deal with it? So we need to do a better job of emotional literacy, teaching people what their emotions actually are with young men and boys uh, uh, in particular, I, because I mean, that's the first step to talking about it early. I, you know, you mentioned that, and I think um, I, I have to remind, remember just one of the most powerful books my father gave me to read when I, literally when I was uh, going into college was, was Emotional Intelligence, and it completely changed just how I approached many things, and, you know, I, through the years, and I think you can have kind of like that, because uh, I see you nodding, um, I guess, camaraderie with someone who's been through and raw and like uh, no bullshit and I'm like I just I there's no time for any of that anymore and whether you think I'm crazy or not uh and I, I typically leave conversations with you're gonna think I'm crazy but um then I let it because I also know that for me managing emotions, like I have to verbalize stuff. So, um, and that's one of the, but to your point is giving cues, uh, teaching skills, uh, because, you know, to prevent bigger things from happening. And, and, and it's so, what, I think what I'm trying to get at that it is so easy to prevent the bigger things from happening by having a conversation or having the proper tool. And that's where we're caught in that kind of like loop where we can't figure that out yet as a whole, right? Um, I want to jump into your book uh, because it's uh, it's coming out in January, as you said. Your so-called normal, um, love the love the the title. By the way, uh, I feel like it will resonate with um, because it's again interesting enough. I was having a conversation with my son on Sunday night after the di dinner. And we were talking about normalcy and he was like, what is normal mom? Can you actually define what normal is? And I'm like, you know, that's a great question. And I said, You're asking <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I'm pretty proud of both of them, him, especially just because he's older and mature and, and the things that he's dealt with have just, um, he is able to now verbalize things in a way that are just clear and like we can communicate. But it, that question really hit home for me because it was like, wow, like why, you know, like he, he gets it. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he already at 12, he understand that there is no, like, what is that? Because we, we have these expectations of others, right? Um, but we don't have them about ourselves, right? Like we, are, we let others pass. I let people, you know, they're going through a hard time. They're having a difficult day, but we won't do that, we won't do that for, for ourselves. ourselves. So, um, Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, again, why you decided to uh, to write this book. Uh, I know you don't want it to be like this drabby, uh, you know, um, chronicle of your life. You actually want it to be a hopeful and uplifting book, which I genuinely think 
it will be um, because it's so needed. I mean, I whenever anyone asks us to talk about mental health topics, we're like on it because it is our way to also advocate in, in, a, in a way, you know, this important topic. Um, tell us about a little bit about the book, what inspired you to write it uh, and where you see your conversations headed in the future with it. Sure. So, you know, the, the book really came from uh, after I had done the, the TED talk about my own lived experience. I kind of bookend it with two stories, one of my first suicide attempts and then what ended up being my last suicide attempt. Uh, and I tell the story of a complete stranger uh, who pulled me off of a bridge who saved my life. Um, after I did that and, and that talk went viral all around the world and I got millions of views, um, so many people would ask me for years what happened next, uh, but also what happened before that? You know, it's only a 16 minute talk, so you can only <laughs> well, do so much. Mark. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's incredibly important to talk about suicide. That's how we get people to open up uh, and share that, that if they're thinking of it too. But we also need the context for it. We also need to teach people that suicide very rarely, even if we don't see the symptoms beforehand, very rarely comes out of nowhere. There's almost always social or economic or uh, uh, healthcare um, uh, considerations that lend into it. So that's part of what inspired me to write the book was that I wanted to give the broader context of why I found myself in that place uh, for so many years uh, as an adolescent and then really what happened next. Uh, the title, uh, interestingly enough, came from, I, I was writing the first draft. Um, I was talking to my older sister about some of the things uh, that we had gone through together because I was trying to fact check and I found out through writing, you know, how we remember things isn't always how other people remember things. And there's not, it turns out, any objective version of those events because it only exists in a lot of people's different memories and everybody remembers it differently. But anyway, that aside, that aside my sister uh, jumped in at one point and she said to me, you know, Mark, why do you keep talking about all this trauma stuff, these traumas that happen to us? That, she said, that's normal. That's just what happened to everybody. And I said to her, Krista, her name is Krista. I said, Chris, that's not normal. What happened to us wasn't normal. This doesn't happen to everybody. And she, and, but she didn't know that. So I think that where it really struck for me was that when you're in it, you don't know it's not supposed to be that way because you're just trapped in that in your own little world. Uh, and I think that we all do that. We all construct our own version of normal. And my version of normal was that it wasn't okay for a young boy to talk about his emotions, that um, it just was the way that it was and it will never get better. Right, but it doesn't have to be, you know, we can make it better. And I think that's that moment really came home for me when uh, I tell the story in the TED talk, uh, this complete stranger uh, pulled me off the edge of a bridge. Uh, there was another man at the sidelines after the police had barricaded it and he had shouted out for me to jump and he called me a coward. Uh, and after the man who I referred to for years as the man in the light brown jacket, the stranger who saved my life, after he pulled me off the bridge and I was sent back to hospital, I was just stuck with this idea of these two men, the one on the sidelines and the one who reached out and saved me. Devil, right? Like telling you, yeah. Exactly. And they were both watching this exact same situation unfold in front of them. And each of them responded in two very different ways. And I couldn't help but think, you know, if I can't change the circumstance, maybe I can change how I look at the circumstance, how I respond to the circumstance. And that's really, I think, where, where the book uh, becomes hopeful. It, it becomes that mind shift, mind shift change that uh, maybe, my, maybe I'm not a victim of circumstance. Maybe my life is happening for me rather than to me. Uh, and that's the, the story that I try to trace is how I use my story to do something good. 
we need to have more virtual coffees because this yeah. is exactly something <laughs> that I say I say a lot. What happened to me uh, happened for me, and um, mm -hmm. that's how I when that became kind of just like a mantra, right? Um, it uh, just started to shift how I viewed the things that were happening to me as opposed to for me, and uh, that's very powerful. And I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today. But I would, before we go, uh, how can people connect with you? How can people work with you? And where can people get your book? Uh, I'm very active on social media. So I'm at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, everywhere else. Uh, my website is markhennick.com and the book will be available worldwide uh, by, through HarperCollins on January 12th. So across the United States, it's already available for pre-sale through Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Amazing. Mark, thank you so much uh, for joining us today for this very important conversation. Thank you for having the, you know, I, I don't even want to say courage because I think that that's so played out. I think these are just conversations that we should be having more frequently, yeah. but yes, the courage to be an advocate because it takes um, it just takes strength uh, because we also, you also know that this isn't work that is done with one talk. It's constant. You know, you may have uh, done the tech talk and gotten a ton of amazing feedback from it, but this is an everyday conversation that needs to be had until we all turn blue to try to normalize uh, what we're doing for mental health patients and for our own mental health. Because we, I think in some way, shape or form, we all have some sort of mental health issue. Uh, we've just either, especially now. yeah, especially during the pandemic and politics and all of that jazz. Uh, but again, thank you so much. Uh, super powerful to speak to you. I can't um, wait to get my hands on the book when it comes out and uh, be connected more to you because um, you're doing amazing work. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much for having me and for sharing these uh, important messages with your audience as well. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you.